we have been looking, uh, last time we were together, all of us, uh, at the Paul's letter to the Colossians. We have considered the author of the letter and the uh, recipients of the letter, whom Paul identified as those saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae, and having determine something of the meaning of those words, and particularly how they apply as describing and characterizing the true church of Jesus Christ, we want to turn now to the prayer and blessing of Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, which is in these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. As was his usual custom, and in fact uh, a, a custom common to all of ancient society, Paul begins his letter by a brief prayer for the recipients. This section of the letters not only of Paul, but of the other apostles in which it occurs, is often called a blessing. And that is true enough, but we must not understand it as if Paul was somehow mystically conveying grace or blessings to the Colossians, as if he was some sort of uh, priest. Rather, this is in essence a prayer. On the other hand, it's not merely a pious wish, because this prayer has as its foundation the firm promise of God, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was an ancient custom in letter writing, practiced particularly among the uh, Greeks and Romans, to begin with a salutation, a greeting to the recipient of the letter that would wish such things to them as health or happiness, or joy. You can, uh, countless uh, numbers of letters that are uh, uh, available from this time in which you can see how they will begin the letter uh, uh, to, uh, to so-and-so, happiness and, and joy, or health and best wishes, or things like that. But in the hands of the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, those earthly things, those transient things, are passed by, aren't they? And he brings his attention in his greeting, in his salutation, to spiritual blessings. And not just any spiritual blessings, but the highest, the chiefest blessings. Blessings that are the source and the fountain of all blessings, and that in fact contain within them all blessings that might be desired, rightly desired, from God. So what are these things for which the Apostle prays and wishes for the Colossians? Well, he says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Now he first wishes for them grace. Now, of course, before we can consider this, we have to know what he means when he says the word grace here. Because sometimes in the scripture, the word grace refers, for example, to the gifts of God to the church, both inward, 
such as sanctification and outward gifts of God to the church, such as the officers of the church uh, and the gifts given to the body for the service of the body. For example, in Ephesians 4.7, uh, the grace of God there is connected to the gifting of officers or to the church. But Paul is not praying here for grace in them or grace among them as a body. He prays for grace to them. And so I think that we must stick with the principal meaning of grace in the scriptures in places like this, which is, of course, the favor of God, the benevolence of God, of which we are the objects. And, of course, this favor and benevolence of God is always unmerited. It has to be. Because merit, what we earn, and grace, which is a gift, are opposed diametrically in the scriptures, just as works and faith are opposed. Correspondingly, works connected with merit, faith connected with grace. Now, of course, we know that furthermore, this unmerited benevolence and favor of God is all the more astonishing because it is directed towards us as sinners, as those who are completely unworthy of God's goodness and positively worthy of wrath and justice and judgment and condemnation. Now, of course, Paul does not pray that they might receive the blessings of salvation for the first time, as if they were aliens to the true salvation, some pack of heathen. Not at all. Rather, he prays that they might continue to receive God's favor. In fact, that they might increase in their knowledge of and experience of that favor and benevolence. He prays, secondly, that they might also have peace, that peace might be unto them from God as well as grace. If by grace he prays for the favor and benevolence of God towards them, by peace he prays for the effects of grace, the greatest of which is, of course, reconciliation and pardon of sin. That's what it is to have peace with God. It's to have pardon of sin, because until we have pardon of sin, God and we are at enmity with one another. Now, of course, Paul, again, is not praying that they might know reconciliation with God for the first time. Instead, we are reminded that we stand constantly in need of pardon of sin, that we do not come to God once for mercy. We must come to Him always, every day. Daily we sin, daily we confess our sins, and daily we receive further assurance of pardon from God. Now, Christ did not intercede for us once, Rather, he intercedes for us constantly because we are in constant and continual need of peace and pardon. Now, we noted before that this greeting replaced the earthly wishes of the secular correspondence of the day, and this should serve as a reminder to us of what man's chief need is and what ought to be our own greatest concern. Because it doesn't matter if we have health or wealth, if we stand alienated from the one who formed our bodies and who owns all of the treasures of the universe. 
And so, likewise, it is folly and it is madness to pursue those things when the great God and King stands poised to shoot us with his arrows of wrath and destroy both body and soul in hell. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he should lose his soul? So we learn that the highest benefit and treasure that a man can know is the favor of God. The free benevolence of God directed towards him, bringing pardon of sin, bringing reconciliation. And if we have those things, we have all riches and joy and true happiness. And if we are without those things, no matter how wealthy we may be by the world's standards, no matter how much merriment we may drown ourselves in, we are desperately poor, and our happiness is a shadow that will quickly vanish away, as Peter says of the grass that withers. Now he prays for this blessing. He says, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is important that we observe in these words, from whom these blessings come, and through whom we receive them. And Paul is very clear and unmistakable here, and if we correctly understand his words, it will guard against a multitude of errors and heresies. Paul prays that they might receive this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none will deny that it is God's paternal love, God's fatherly love, that brings us favor and pardon. But many are bold to deny that we must have to do with Christ to enjoy those benefits. But we can say confidently that this and many other scriptures show us that all of the other religions of the world, whether Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, all the rest, are dead ends. There is no grace from God to be found in them. Through them, not a single soul will find rest or peace or the favor of God. And this is equally true of those religions that will acknowledge uh, the God of the scriptures in some sense, but deny Christ his rightful place, such as Judaism, or uh, what the Unitarians imagine of themselves. But what we find here as, is that at the root, all men are willing to locate pardon of sin in God as our Father. That's the essence of the modern universalistic liberalism. That, well, God is the father uh, 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 by, by creation of all of the human race. And so, if we merely have to do with him as our father that way, we can find pardon of sin. But the scriptures speak of the fatherhood of God in a different sense. Gospel religion knows that the pardon of sin is through God as he manifests himself in Jesus Christ to be our Father, redemptively. Christ is the way to salvation and to God. 
There are others who will admit that grace and peace are to be found in Christ alone, but not as Lord. We may have Christ's salvation and remain wedded to sin, they will say, but here we see otherwise. It is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and no man may have God as his Father who will not have Christ as his Lord. So we see then that the blessings of Grace and peace come to us from God, but it is from God through Jesus Christ, and that we only know God as our Father through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, these things bring us to a very important, in fact, a vital application. Because of the corruption of the human heart, by sin, men are ever ready to seek grace and peace from anything and everything except the Lord Jesus. You see, unless people's conscience have been completely seared so that they no longer know guilt because they've been hardened by God, men's consciences, even worldly men, naturally, alternately excuse and accuse them because they have the work of the law written on their hearts. So even the worldly man, even the the man who, who knows nothing of God, knows nothing of Christ, and indeed knows nothing of the written word of God, when he commits wrong and breaks the law of God, his conscience accuses him, until by repetition over and over and over, he finally hardens himself. But he, he is accused, and when he keeps God's law, he is excused. So, So, every man has this conscience excusing him and wants some pardon, needs to find some way to pacify it. But where do they seek it? Well, some seek it in human virtue, in human uprightness, like the great, supposedly great, pagan philosophers. Uh, But the Bible says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So we can't find it that way, though men will seek it there. Some seek peace in mystical contemplations and ecstatic experiences. But it is the word of God that reveals the way of life, not delirious, inebriated visions. Some seek this grace and peace through extra works of religion, seeking to be the supermen, of religion, and so we have the monasteries and the nunneries, or we have the the crusaders, for example, who were promised pardon of sin if they would go out and fight wars in behalf of the Roman Catholic Church to retake the Holy Land or kill whoever else they wanted killed. Oh, you'll have pardon of sin if you'll become a crusader. Or in their modern radical Islam, the suicide bombers such as we see operative in uh, the state of Israel today, causing so much havoc and trouble. They are told that if they will go and die for Allah, that they shall enter into paradise and so forth. So, through these extra, superabundant works of religion, men seek pardon of sin. And, of course, these seem ridiculous to us, and we laugh at them, not realizing that there is a far more common and insidious substitution made by many who will profess Christ. 
And that is, and this is so easy to do, many will substitute the duties of true religion, seeking grace and peace not from Christ, but from religious acts and ordinances. We do not have peace with God simply because we are baptized with water or because we are circumcised according to the law. We do not know the favor of God and salvation simply because we pray three times a day and abstain from outward transgressions of the law and keep the Lord's Day and read the Bible and attend church and are not like that man over there, that publican over there. Grace and peace is to us only through Jesus Christ, And we know and have this grace and peace only when we receive him as he is offered in the gospel by true faith, accompanied with sincere repentance. We must beware of this trap because many, many fall into this pit and only the last day will number the multitude whose souls it has claimed. Secondly, I want to return for a moment by way of application to something I said at the very beginning, which was that this prayer of Paul's was not merely a pious wish, but has the promise of God as its foundation, which gives a sure, unmovable base from which to pray, and indeed guarantees the success of the prayer. Nothing is more certain in the Scriptures than that God, through Jesus Christ, is reconciled to his people and they to him, and that through Jesus Christ he pours out upon them grace and peace. Christ promises peace to the people of God. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Christ not only promises his peace to the people of God, He secured that peace for them by his death. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, For to make him in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were near. So by his work, he secures peace by his death. He continues that peace in his work of intercession. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them completely that come unto him, come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ensures that his people know that peace of God individually and personally by the grace of faith that is given and gifted to them. Romans Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, this brings us directly to the grace of God. For not only is there this sure promise of peace, there is a sure promise of grace. God is gracious to his people. 
Romans 5, 1 and 2, as we were reading about, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Then verses 8 through 10, God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through them. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So he's speaking about reconciliation. And he says that this is the free gift, the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, verse 15. For if by one man's offense, verse 17, death reigned, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. And verse 20 and 21, Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the, the, the fruit of this is that the entire uh, way by which we are saved through the work of Christ is called the reign of grace. The reign of grace. Grace enthroned to reign over the people of God and for them. And in Romans 8, 28-39, he goes on and adds to that, uh, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. For whom he did predestinate, them he called. Whom he called, them he justified. Whom he justified, them he glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, of course, no one, no one, nothing. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, all of salvation is the grace of God. And, and this continues on unto eternity with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Ephesians 2, 4-7 through 7. God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. There's salvation. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved. So we have the firm promise of God, of peace and grace to the people of God, upon which Paul may base his prayer. Thirdly, we learn by the example of the Apostle that we ought not only to know about these mercies, to be aware of them, we ought to desire them and pray for them, not only for themselves, but for others also, for our brethren in Christ. Think about worldly men, driven on just by lusts. If, if you told a worldly man that he was to receive an inheritance of countless immeasurable riches, beginning now in installments, and ultimately at some point in the future he would receive all of it, 
so much riches that he couldn't even spend it ever or, or imagine it or that any single bank could hold it. Just in, in infinity of riches. Well, that worldly man would be filled with desire. He would be longing for the day that he might receive all of it. And he would be seeking to increase his daily measure by whatever means possible. But we have an inheritance promised to us that is infinitely more valuable than immeasurable physical wealth, eternal life and endless grace. Does not the simple equity and parallel between these things demand that we ought to be filled with desire for that grace, to in fact hunger and thirst after that righteousness, as Christ says, to seek to increase our measure of that treasure now, and to long, to long for our entry into the full possession of the exceeding riches of His grace, just as the Israelites entered into the Canaan flowing with milk and honey. Paul's prayer then for the Colossians, or Paul's salutation. Now we want to move on now to the beginning of verse 3 and just make a few introductory comments on uh, the next section. And look at the very beginning of verse 3. We mentioned before that it was a customary practice of opening letters in those days to have a, a greeting followed by a wish of prosperity, which we've seen how it was sanctified by Paul. Uh, it was also customary then to follow such a greeting with a giving of thanks. And once again, we find this to be the case in our letter here. Only once again it is transformed from being a mere formality centered in earthly things to a very lofty revelation of the heavenly truths of the gospel. And so like that fabled touch of Midas which would turn all to gold, so the touch of the Holy Spirit transforms the common into priceless treasures. Verses 3 through 8 constitute one sentence. Uh, as was often the case in Paul's letters, we have a relatively simple main clause that gets complicated by piling up a bunch of other clauses on top of it. Seven of them, to be exact, plus some assorted other modifiers. And the reason that I'm mentioning that is not to give you a grammar lesson, but simply to alert you to the fact that this is a complicated passage of Scripture. And if we're going to gain an understanding of it, we're going to have to do some careful untangling and try to establish the order that is in the Apostles' thoughts. And this will be somewhat complicated, but of course the Lord evidently intended it to be that way. Some things in the Word are plain and obvious, easy to understand, written with a large hand so that he that runs may read it, as the Scripture says. Others are buried treasures that yield their store only to those who diligently apply themselves to digging in the Word with thoughtful attention. And this is one of those latter places. So if you wish to benefit, it will require careful attention on your part. And for my part, I shall try to make the explanation as simple as possible. Let's just read 3 through 8 to give us some idea of what's going on here. Paul writes, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, 
Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So Paul begins in these words, we give thanks to God. Uh, and this is the main clause of the sentence. Everything else ultimately depends on this. Uh, let me point out, draw your attention, first of all, to the, fact, to the fact that he says, we, we give thanks to God. This is because you will, and in fact, before I go on, everything in this entire first section is in the plural when Paul is speaking. And that is because you will remember he's speaking in behalf of himself and Timothy from verse 1. Now, it's true that Timothy would assent to all the doctrine of this epistle, but the fact remains that it is Paul, not Timothy, who is doing the instructing. But in this section of the letter, this is not direct instruction. Rather, it is a description of the actions of Paul and Timothy in response to the news that they heard about the Colossians. And so, Timothy, because he joins equally in this prayer, so Paul begins with a we. Uh, secondly, uh, we'll point out that he says, we give thanks. Now, I think that we all know what those words mean, uh, to what it is to thank someone for something, so I'm not going to endeavor to explain the obvious. Uh, what controls the meaning of this word are all the phrases and clauses uh, that follow. And they tell us in this set of verses, or the next uh, verses 3 through the beginning of 5, we will find out to whom they give thanks, the frequency with which they give thanks, the manner by which they give thanks, the occasion upon which they began to give thanks, and the ultimate ground or basis of their thanksgiving. So all of this is in there. And we have to separate those things out and look at them one at a time and see how they're all related. And so we just mention, first of all, to whom it is that they give thanks. And then we'll stop for today. Who is it that they give thanks to? Paul and Timothy are giving thanks. Now, uh, I want to point out to you something interesting about this word giving thanks and its usage in the scripture, really. That's what I want to point out is how it's used in the scriptures. This word and its cognates, which are the other forms of the word, occur 55 times in the New Testament. And that's a fairly substantial number of, of usages for a, for a single word. And 53 of those are directed towards God. 53 of them are, are directly aimed at God. Only two exceptions. Acts 24.3 is the first exception, and this is important, both of these, because it's going to explain something about this word to us. Acts 24.3, uh, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed against the, the governor against Paul... And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Seeing that by thee, that's by, by, uh, by Felix, 
we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, with all Eucharistine, Eucharisteo. So it's in the speech of Tertullus before Felix and uh, the governor, and it is in praise of Felix the governor with this, by this slimy uh, lawyer. Romans 16.4 is the other exception, and this is in the words of Paul. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, Eucharisteo, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to them. So two exceptions. Now this tells us something, this 53 usages towards God, and that is that in the New Testament, Eucharisteo, give thanks, is a word that fundamentally describes an act of religious worship towards God. It is an act of religious worship, the giving of thanks. Now, how does this fit in with our exceptions? How can we say that Eucharisteo is an act of religious worship, when we've got 53 usages, when we've got these two others that are clearly directed towards people? Well, uh, in those rare cases in which it is applied to a human, it indicates the most profound appreciation imaginable, and by a metaphor, it is as if one had reverential feelings to them as one would to God. Now, understand my meaning here. I am not saying that Paul worshipped Priscilla and Aquila, or that all the churches of the Gentiles worship Priscilla and Aquila. That would be as absurd as it would have been idolatrous. I am saying that by using a word that is almost exclusively, in fact, other than this one other instance, is exclusively confined to God, and the religious worship of God to describe his feelings towards Priscilla and Aquila by metaphor. He shows how profound and how deep his thanks to them really was. You see, we do this with words. For example, we'll say someone worships something. Well, we don't really mean that they go and have a religious service for whatever it is that they, uh, like if someone worships money or someone worships sports or something like that. Well, they don't go and have a religious service in front of their coins or in front of their bank and pray to their money and, and so forth. No, we don't mean that at all. We mean that it is the principal thing to which they set their heart on and follow after it and receive its law in their lives. And it's the same way here. It's a metaphor. The, 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 he uses the word intentionally to describe how profoundly thankful he was to them. And if we consider the case, we can see why. They risked death in his behalf. And the scriptures tell us that greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And the gratitude for such a love that was, that was felt by the apostle and by the church could only be accurately, accurately represented by borrowing a word from the worship of God and the thanksgiving that men have to God for his gifts to them. Now what about Tertullus? Well, that's an interesting case. It too establishes the position, I think. Tertullus was an orator, and it is obvious from his slimy speech that he was trying to flatter the governor, Felix, wasn't he? 
And so by using this word, he's ingratiating himself to Felix by addressing him almost as if he were a deity, you see. Using this word that shows what a, what a profound thanksgiving they had towards Felix for his kindness to them. So this was a direct attempt to flatter Felix with the most fantastic heights of the Sycophant's rhetoric that could be named. So, to give thanks to Eucharisteo is by definition pretty much directed towards God. Now Paul goes on, as I said, these thanks were not given merely to any God or some generic God figure. They were directed, and this language is very interesting, to God who is Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If, if we read it literally, it's we give thanks to God, or actually it's we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which understood is we give thanks to God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the emphasis being on the fact that it's not just some God, but it's the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God as the Father of Jesus Christ. Now this is not phrased in that way purposelessly. There are two connected reasons for this statement, one broad and one more narrow. Broadly speaking, I want you to note how carefully and how intentionally Paul brings forth Christ in these first verses, uh, 1 through 8. Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1. They are the brethren and saints in Christ, verse 2. Paul and Timothy pray for grace to them from the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. They give thanks to God who is the Father of Christ, verse 3. The Colossians' faith is faith in Christ, verse 4. Epaphras, who declared the true gospel to them, is a faithful minister of Christ, verse 7. And of course, this is not even to get to the substance and body of the first chapter of Colossians, which is an extended discussion of the person and position and glory of Christ. All this is preparatory to that. He's laying the foundation for what he's going to do by reminding them of the centrality of Christ to the true faith. It is Christ's gospel containing Christ, preached by Christ's ministers, which they believed, and believing it put them in Christ, and their belief was a blessing from Christ, for which Paul thanks the Father of Christ. And so when we understand that the chief doctrinal error that was being circulated among the Colossians related to a downgrading of the glory and the principality of Christ so that you could get to a fullness that was beyond Christ and a gnosis, a wisdom that was beyond the simple doctrine of Christ so that you could go to the, the depths of the true religion and that Christ was really... Uh, that you could worship angels, and that was even better. You could get the fullness. You go bypass Christ. Christ is good for beginners, but you go beyond that to the to the angels and to asceticism, and so you get the fullness and the wisdom. So this principal error downgraded the place of Christ. How subtle and yet how effective is what Paul is already doing here by showing just with little dropped references, that Christ is the center. He's an apostle of Christ. Epaphras is a minister of Christ. It's Christ's religion. 
To get to God, you go through Christ. He's the Son of God. You're in Christ. It's faith in Christ. The gospel that you heard was about Christ and you believed in Him. Very subtle but very effective. Secondly, and more specifically, the purpose behind this particular reference here in this verse to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to lay immediate stress on the fact that we only have to do with God as the Father of our Lord Christ, and that it is only through Christ that we know the living God and His grace and His blessings. As Calvin says, It is not lawful for us to acknowledge any other God than Him who has manifested Himself to us in His Son. And this is the only key for opening the door to us if we are desirous to have access to the true God. And also, further, as Edie says in his commentary, it is God as the Father of Christ we thank. For in this relation, He is our Father God. In fact, uh, we are reminded from the account of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch that the fundamental Christian confession that summed up one's belief and adherence to the gospel was what? He says, that, what, does the, what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right there, the essential, rock-bottom, fundamental confession of salvation. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, of course, it implies much more than that. But I'm saying that by, by, by a summary, it's reduced to those words. And we will further consider the importance of this as we continue in the chapter. Because as I said, what is the heresy here that we're going to see? The heresy is this downgrading of Christ and this, and this way in which you get to the fullness of God and the wisdom, the higher wisdom of God, not through Christ. Christ is good for beginners. Christ is good for when you get into Christianity at the beginning. But now, these people are telling the Colossians, you can go over beyond that. Christ is, you know, over here. But it, you worship angels. That's the real thing. And you, and you, and you get to this fullness and this knowledge, you see. By, and so, Paul says, no. God, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is who we have to do with. And it's Jesus as the Son of God that's the way to God. So let's simply uh, remember that Paul is laying the groundwork here for what follows by drawing attention to the Sonship of Christ and the necessity of acknowledging only the God who has manifested Himself in Christ and Christ as the only door of entry to the knowledge of God, and to fellowship with God. And so, of course, we are confronted with the, <clears throat> again, the central difference between gospel religion and false religion and nominalism, which is the centrality of Christ. As we said, every false religion denies that Christ is the doorway to the Father and to the true and living God. And nominal Christianity simply neglects it. Oh, the, make a verbal confession of Christ, but Christ is not central in the heart 
of those nominal Christians. He is not central in the, in, in the essence of their faith. They do not truly have to do with Him by way of faith and worship and access and prayer and hope and love and all of those things. So Paul then already, uh, in these words, laying the foundation for the doctrine that Christ only is the way to the true and living God. And we'll see as he goes on, what, he, what he's really doing in verses 3 through 8, is he's calling to their attention, he's calling them back to the beginning, when they first received the gospel. Epaphras preached to them, and he's a faithful minister of Christ. And what did Epaphras preach? The gospel that Epaphras preached, Paul says, is the true gospel. It's the grace of God in truth. What they heard from Epaphras a long time ago was it. That was the true gospel. And, and, and that is what brought them to salvation in Christ. And that's what, what brought this love to all the saints. And it is only in that true gospel that they have the hope laid up for them in heaven. And that's what they heard about in the word of the truth of the gospel. And it is the true gospel that Epaphras preached to them that is bearing fruit in all the world. And it is because they received the true gospel that Paul and Timothy give thanks, you see. Emphasizing the beginning, the true gospel that they heard. And then he's going to bring the contrast by way of teaching about Christ with this false gospel that was now circulating among them. So we'll continue with verses 3 through 8 uh, when we continue next week, Lord willing. Mm-hmm.